Welcome to The Compass, the podcast ministry of Calvary Baptist Church of Fayetteville, Arkansas. We're thrilled that you've chosen to download and listen as we continue our journey through God's Word. Now on this week's podcast, Pastor Kirk is going to be sharing another in our Christmas 2021 series. If you're looking for a church home, a place that you can connect with other believers and have them be your faith family, join us for worship on Sunday mornings at 1030 a.m. at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you're looking for more information about Calvary Church, you can find that at calvaryfayetteville.com. Email us at info at calvaryfayetteville.com or call us at 479-442-4634. Again, Pastor Kirk is continuing our series in the subject of Christmas with a message entitled, When Christ Came, from Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Let's listen together. Well, Matthew, the gospel writer, begins his gospel by giving us the family tree of Joseph, the supposed father of Jesus. And he begins and goes all the way back to Abraham. The reason Matthew does that is he is presenting Jesus Christ as a king. And a king in Jewish culture had to be able to prove his pedigree. And so Matthew takes us from Joseph back to Abraham. Luke, on the other hand, takes Jesus' lineage not just back to Abraham, but all the way back to the Garden of Eden and all the way back to Adam. Luke is presenting Jesus to the Greek and Gentile readers as the perfect man, the Son of God. And so that's why he gives the genealogy of Jesus as he does. Mark comes along, and he doesn't mess with genealogies at all. He just jumps right into the middle of the ministry of Jesus, right into the action, and presents the ministry of Christ, his words and his works. But then there's John. And I like all of these guys, but I really like John. John just kind of throws all of that genealogy stuff away. Not saying that he disagrees with it or that it's unimportant. He just takes a totally different tack. He has a different strategy altogether. He doesn't begin with Jesus' ministry. He doesn't begin with his birth. He doesn't begin with his family tree. He goes all the way back to eternity past. And he draws back the curtain of time. And John begins, as we read to begin our service, with these words. In the beginning was the Word. Word is capitalized. It's a proper name. It is another name for Jesus. It is saying to us that Jesus is the Word, is the communication of God to man. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. 
A few verses later, he says, And the Word, now listen to this, And the Word became flesh. That is the incarnation, the enfleshment of spirit. It is God who is a spirit taking on the robe of flesh, putting on an earth suit to dwell among us. And we have seen his glory, John says, the glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This is the great and central truth of Advent of the coming of the Lord. God became flesh to dwell among us. That great truth connects to the prophecy of the Messiah, one of them in the Old Testament that we have read two or three times already this month. Isaiah chapter 9 where the scripture says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. And then it says a few verses later, now listen again. For to us a child is born. And to us, what? Do you remember the rest of it? A son is given. Notice the balance of those two statements. For to us a child is born. Not so unusual. It happens all the time, right? It happens all over the world. It's been happening for thousands of years. Children are being born and later people are dying. It's just the process of life. For to us a child is born. But for this child to be born, something had to take place. A son had to be given. Because he wasn't just any child being born. He wasn't just another child being born. This was God coming into the world. And for this child to be born, a son had to be given. A father had to be willing to not only surrender his only begotten son, but direct his only begotten son to leave heaven to somehow take on human flesh, to become an embryo in the womb of a young virgin named Mary and to grow and to be born in the natural way that humans are born, to become flesh in order to dwell among us. A son had to be given. That event, before time began and before a universe existed, God, God was making provision for lost sinners for you and me. If anyone ever asks you what was God doing in eternity past before creating the universe, before creating the world, before creating mankind, if you ever wonder this God who always was, what was he up to before time began? I don't know what all he was up to except one thing. He was making plans for your salvation and for mine. He was making provision even then because Jesus stood as a lamb slain from even before the foundation of the world. 
All history revolves around Christ's coming. He is the door of history, or maybe even more properly, he is the hinge on which the door of history turns. All world events take place either B.C., before Christ, or A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. The Old Testament message is that Christ is coming. The Gospels in the New Testament, the first four books, tell us that Christ has come. And then the letters and the books of history that follow tell us that Christ is coming again, that you and I are a people in between, in between two advents, in between two comings of Jesus. He came 2,000 years ago as our Savior. At any time, he will come again as the King of kings and the Lord of lords. The first time he came to die, the next time he comes to redeem all the earth and set all things right. So we celebrate the Christmas season by remembering his first coming, but by anticipating his second coming. With all that in mind, by way of a long introduction... Look at your Bibles in the book of Galatians chapter 4. That should be page 974 in the Pew Bibles. And notice these words beginning in verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We are redeemed through Christ. We are adopted by Christ as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of His Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is the word of the Lord. And is it not, is it not a wonderful word? Redeemed, adopted, and made an heir of God. Because in the fullness of time, God came and became flesh. God sent forth His Son to be born. Well, the fullness of time is an interesting statement. In the fullness of time. You might paraphrase it by saying, when everything was just right, God sent forth His Son. But that leaves the wrong impression because, you see, that leaves the idea that God is sitting on His throne waiting for conditions to all kind of line up, kind of the way you and I do before we take some of our action steps towards reaching a goal. Things have to align. Things have to line up. Things have to kind of come together for us. But that's not the way God functions. Because God is not a spectator on the events and activities of this life. God is the one in charge of everything that takes place in this world, good and bad and everything in between. God is a sovereign God. God is a God who is in control. 
And when the fullness of time had come, and that's when Jesus was born, that means not when everything became acceptable to God, but when God had brought enough world events to the place that he wanted it to be just as he had planned for it to be, that's when he sent his son. It was in the same way that no, so many times during his earthly ministry, Jesus said, or the scripture says, that, that Jesus says, it is not yet my time, or his time had not yet come. He was working and achieving everything that was his plan so that when the right time had been brought to pass, then Jesus acted and made his way to the cross. In the same way, with God giving his son Jesus to the world, it came at the fullness of time. Let me give you five words that describe the coming of Jesus in the fullness of time. The first one we've already touched on, it's the word preordained. Preordained, when the fullness of time had come, there was a preordained event. It had been determined sometime in eternity past. Again, in the council halls of eternity, as one person has said, when there was just Father, Son, and Spirit. There was not a universe, there was not empty space, because even empty space had to be created. When there was just God and God alone, it was determined, it was preordained that Jesus, the Son of God, would one day come into this world to be the Savior of the world. And so God worked through time and space, through governments, through nations, through decisions, through armies, through wars, through others who helped prepare the way. God brought everything just to where it would need to be. In the few hundred years leading up to the birth of Christ, the Greeks had given the world a common language. But the Greek culture gave way to the powerful Roman Empire that centralized government and, of all things, built roads. Have you ever thought about how important that was to the coming of Christ and to the spread of the gospel? Travel throughout the world was possible because of the Romans' contributions. And then the Jewish people, the people into which Jesus was going to come and be born as one of them, they were at a place in life that they were in desperate need and they were hungry for a leader. And they were praying for a Messiah that they believed would come one day. And all of these attitudes, all of these events, all of these world happenings worked together to bring about a preordained event. And that was that Jesus would be born because his earthly mother and her husband Joseph had to travel a distance, a hardship for poor people in that day and time to a little village called Bethlehem to pay a Roman tax and to be counted. And God fulfilled prophecy by getting them to Bethlehem. Now listen, just so you and me know that we're a part of God's plan too, God preordained you. Did you know that? 
You're not an accident. You're not a surprise. You're not just a random person living in Prairie Grove or Fayetteville or wherever it is that, that you sleep at night. Your life and living, you were born for such a time as this that God preordained these events, that you would be born in this time, that you would experience a pandemic different than anything else we've ever experienced, that, that you would live in a time when, when all the kind of when Arkansas would be winning football again. Aren't you glad to see those days arrive? You see, God is at work in all the events of our lives, both the painful and the pleasurable. And we experience life, its difficulties and its sufferings and, and its rejoicings. It's all the work of God in us and around us because God is a God who is not a spectator, but a God who is in control. He preordained the birth of His Son Jesus and you and me. A second word, what He preordained, then He prophesied. He prophesied. For instance... And by the way, there are some 450 or so prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. But one that's very specific that we've already touched on. Micah chapter 5 verse 2. Micah was given this message from the Holy Spirit, so he wrote it down. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is to be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient of days. Can you imagine being an inhabitant that was born in that little nowhere place called Bethlehem? I mean, just not even hardly a spot on the map. But yet you read that scripture, and for how many generations did parents wonder when a son was born to them, is this going to be that promised one who's going to be the king of Israel, who's going to be a ruler, whose coming is going to be from old, from the ancient of days. Can you imagine how they wondered about all of that? Well, finally one day it did come, but it didn't come from an inhabitant of Bethlehem. It came from someone living some 80 or 90 miles to the north, but whose roots were in Bethlehem. But there were all of these prophecies about a coming Messiah. And like I said uh, a couple of weeks ago, it was kind of like taking those prophecies, it's like a jigsaw puzzle, and, and trying to put the pieces together and see how they fit when you didn't have the big picture to work from. You're just trying to see how that, that this can happen and how that's going to happen. Peter Stoner, who's dead now, has been for a number of years, was a professor emeritus of science at Westmont College. He had PhDs in math and astronomy. He was brilliant and he was a Christian. And he undertook the task of figuring the probabilities of Jesus Christ Jesus of Nazareth being the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. He got his students involved, more than 600 of them, to help him. And these 600 students, in 12 different classes, reduced down the conclusions 
to the point that even the most skeptic of all of those students, they got it down so far to the point that even the most skeptic could finally find agreement, they discovered that the probability of one person fulfilling not 450-something prophecies, but just 48 prophecies. They put all of their skills and all of their uh, computers to the task, and they discovered that the probability of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies was 1 in 10 to the 157th power. Now, if you want to see what that looks like, I can't illustrate it for you. I thought about putting it on the screen, but it would be 1 to 10 followed by 157 zeros. The probability of one person fulfilling 48 prophecies and guess what? Jesus fulfilled them all. Nobody else was even close. Dr. Stoner's calculations were presented to a committee of the American Scientific Affiliation for Review. And upon examination, the committee verified that his calculations were dependable and accurate. And then Jewish theologian Alfred Edersheim comes along and says... But Jesus didn't just fulfill 48. He fulfilled at least 400 prophecies. There can be no mistake about it. Don't let anyone tell you that it's just the myths of Scripture. Even when you put what is calculable and what can be determined, Jesus measures up every single time. He was prophesied and he fulfilled those prophecies. There are many prophecies yet to be fulfilled because they had to do with the second advent of Jesus. And I'll tell you, the same Jesus that fulfilled uh, those in, the, uh, in his lifetime 2,000 years ago will fulfill the rest when he comes. You can book it. You can count on it. You can write it down. It was prophesied. He was preordained. He was prophesied. Number three, he was preceded. He was preceded. John the Baptist, too, was a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. Did you know that? John the Baptist, probably the cousin of Jesus Christ. John the Baptist, born about six months before in a miraculous birth of his own, if you remember. This John the Baptist was a fulfillment of the final words in the book of Malachi chapter 4 in the Old Testament. In other words, the Old Testament closes out with a prophecy and a promise of one that is described as Elijah. He was not the Elijah of the prophet of the Old Testament, but he was very much, much like Elijah of the Old Testament. He was a voice crying in the wilderness. He was one who was paving the way for the Messiah. And the Old Testament said he would come, and guess what? He did come. And he started paving the way, preaching a message of repentance and faith in the imminent coming of a Messiah, and baptizing them and preparing them to become Jesus' followers 
when he came. So the time was right in the fullness of time. The language and the government and the roads helped facilitate the news. The empty religion of the Jews created a hunger for people, for their Messiah to come and to save them. And then God sent that voice of one crying in the wilderness, John the Baptist, to prepare the way. His, his coming, Jesus' coming was preceded. Number four, let me say this, and this is the hardest part. It was perplexing. When Jesus did come, it was perplexing. And maybe because it was so perplexing, it gave some people an excuse not to acknowledge Him. But it was a Christmas no one expected. Isn't that what we've been talking about for the last three Sundays already? The Christmas that no one expected? This Christmas may be one that no one expected for you. It could be this will be a first Christmas without a loved one. It's always been there. Maybe it'll be the first Christmas of some other, maybe even traumatic or big change in your life. There are thousands of people east of us, from eastern Arkansas all the way through Kentucky, that this will be a Christmas that no one expected. They don't have a home anymore. They are missing family members. Life has a way of turning on a dime, does it not? And sometimes it perplexes us. Why would God do this? Why would God allow that? Well, understand that Jesus' very coming was perplexing to people. He came in a perplexing way. They were looking for a king and a Messiah, a Savior. And he was born in humble, such humble surroundings, a barn of all places. I don't know if Jesus, when he was a little boy, I don't know if he ever went out to play with his friends and left the front door standing wide open with his mother Mary yelling after him, Son, were you born in a barn? And he would say, as a matter of fact, Mom, I understand I was. Such a perplexing way to come into this world. A barn is no place for a king. A feeding trough is no place for a precious son of God to be laid. He was born of a virgin. Who could anticipate that? And this woman who surrendered herself... This teenage girl who submitted herself so completely to the will of God and to the plan of God was willing to live her whole life under the shadow and cloud of suspicion that questioned and created doubt about her very morals. He came in a perplexing way. He grew up in a perplexing way. Can anything good come out of Nazareth? That question was asked. People did not believe that anything good ever came out of Galilee, and especially out of a little back place like Nazareth. His parents were poor. They couldn't send him to the finest schools, dress him in the finest clothes. When they came to offer a sacrifice for this newborn son, they didn't even have the money to sacrifice a lamb. They sacrificed the poorest, the least, of what the Old Testament scriptures could allow. And that was two turtle doves. He was unknown until he began his public ministry. 
Not one incident or achievement was ever mentioned in Scripture from the age of two to the age of 30, except one single event that, that even it looked like just kind of something of such insignificance. Do you remember Jesus' parents had made a pilgrimage with others from around Nazareth down for the Passover to Jerusalem? Jesus was 12. And when it came time for the group, for the entourage, to make their way back north, and they were traveling in a large group of family and other friends, they got at least a day or so journey away before his parents realized, where's Jesus? He's not with us. And in fear, they ran back to the crowded city of Jerusalem, wondering what's happened to their son, and they found him in the temple. He was basically holding court, answering and asking questions that the greatest scholars could not answer. And yet, even then, as he showed his future greatness, the Bible said he left that it was not the fullness of time yet for his ministry to begin. And he went back home with his mother and father, and basically he was acknowledging their authority over him, their creator, because he was not of the age yet for his ministry. He grew up in such a perplexing way. He ministered in such a perplexing way. He shunned the spotlight. He would heal people and tell them not to tell anybody. He would teach in parables, which by the way, sometimes revealed truth and sometimes concealed truth. Parables did both. They were sometimes windows into a scriptural, biblical truth. But other times they just created confusion that went over the heads of even the most religious of leaders. He surrounded himself with ne'er-do-wells, sinners, undesirables, and would say things like, for such is the kingdom of heaven. He didn't curry favor or tell people what they wanted to hear. Instead, he told them what they needed to hear. He never sought popularity. In fact, there were numerous times he could have had such a throng of followers. He could have frightened even those who control, controlled the religion in Jerusalem, the religious world, as well as maybe even the Roman world. But he ministered in such a perplexing way. And he left this life in a perplexing way. He didn't go out in some kind of great, glorious, victorious way. He went out of this life by way of the cross. For the Jews, it was a stumbling block. They wanted a reigning king. For the Gentiles, Paul says, the cross and the message of it is foolishness. So he chose a foolish way to die that people were going to stumble over. You don't achieve greatness through weakness, but that's exactly what Jesus did. Only it wasn't weakness, it was meekness. And that's something totally different. Listen to these words. This is how God comes to us, covered in blood and vernix, born in a barn as an impoverished peasant. 
and later covered in blood and tears, killed on a cross as an ordinary criminal. This is how God comes to save us. It doesn't make sense. It isn't even finished. We continue to wait and ask, How long, O Lord, until you come again to judge the living and the dead? But at the heart and soul of the Christian faith, now listen, because this is what determines whether or not you know Christ or not. But the heart and soul of the Christian faith is the conviction that God, in the entirely unique person of Jesus Christ, shall make all things new. Every tear shall be wiped away, every sin forgiven, every loss restored. He came into this world in blood, and he left this life in blood. But that is the way of the Savior. He didn't just come, though, to give us, listen now, a sweet bedtime story of his birth. He came as a conquering commander to win a war. And it was such a strange way to win a war by way of the cross. His birth in Bethlehem wasn't just a nice story to dust off at Christmas time. It was an assault on enemy territory to establish a beachhead greater than D-Day. Never make the mistake of thinking meek and timid Jesus came not to make a difference. He came to make a difference in the heart and life of everyone. Fifth word, preeminent. Preeminent. He was preordained. He was prophesied. He was preceded by John the Baptist. His life and ministry and everything about it was perplexing, unexpected. But understand this, he was and is preeminent. He is exalted and unsurpassed. Read this out loud with me. Philippians chapter 2. Let's read it in unison together. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. Has your knee bowed before him? Has it? Don't think that you'll get away without that. Every knee will bow. But only those who bow to him in love and surrender in this life will experience life with him in the next. Those who reject him here will bow their knee and beg for mercy on a day of judgment but there will be no mercy to be had, for the days of mercy will be over. Listen to these words from Colossians. Listen closely, chapter 1. He, Jesus, is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by Him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. Now listen closely. It's winding up and getting better. And he is before all things. He was previous. And in him all things hold together. We consist. This universe consists because of him. 
And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. Why? That in everything he might be preeminent. He's number one. He is preeminent, preordained, prophesied, preceded, perplexing, but preeminent nonetheless. James Allen Francis wrote this freestyle poem called One Solitary Life. Listen to these words. He was born in an obscure village, the child of a peasant woman. He grew up in another village where he worked in a carpenter's shop until he was 30. Then for three years, he was an itinerant preacher. He never wrote a book. He never held an office. He never had a family or owned a home. He didn't go to college. He never lived in a big city. He never even traveled 200 miles from the place he was born. He did none of the things that usually accompany greatness. He had no credentials except for himself. He was only 33 when the tide of public opinion turned against him. His friends ran away. One of them denied him. He was turned over to his enemies and went through the mockery of a trial. He was nailed to a cross between two thieves. And while he was dying, his executioners gambled for his garments, the only property he had on earth. When he was dead, he was laid in a borrowed grave through the pity of a friend. Twenty centuries have come and gone, and today he is the central figure of the human race. I am well within the mark when I say that all the armies that have ever marched, all the navies that ever sailed, all the parliaments that ever sat, all the kings that ever reigned, all of these put together have not affected the life of mankind on earth, on this earth, as much as that one solitary life. Jesus Christ, Son of God, Savior of the world. Father, thank you for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus Christ, in the fullness of time, who came to fulfill all the Old Testament scriptures, who came to be the payment for our sins and our sin debt. I pray, Father, if there's anyone among us who does not know you, that they will be pointed to you today and will find you and peace in you. And for us who know you, may we serve you faithfully and diligently and anticipate that day that you return. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Our heart's desire is that you grow and understand the direction God has for you in your life. We hope that by listening today, you are one step closer to discovering that for yourself. If you live in Northwest Arkansas and are looking for a church to call your own, we invite you to reach out to us at Calvary as we study and serve together. We meet for worship at 1030 on Sunday mornings at 1410 North Porter Road in Fayetteville, Arkansas. If you wish to find out more information about Calvary Church or simply contact us, you can do that through our Facebook page or at calvaryfayetteville.com. Until next time, remember that God, His Word, and His people can provide direction for life.